a Podcast One production. Welcome to State Crime Command, the official podcast of the New South Wales Police Force. I'm your host, Adam Shand. This is the case of Colin David Campbell. At 5am on May 29th, 2015, Colin left home on Sydney's Lower North Shore and was never seen again. The 50-year-old, who has a history of mental illness, has not accessed his personal accounts or made contact with his family after that date. No trace of Colin has been found since, nor any clue to his fate. All we know is Colin Campbell vanished. The inquest into Colin Campbell's disappearance was held on the 18th of January 2017 at the Glebe Coroner's Court, then Deputy State Coroner Teresa O'Sullivan presiding. Police had sent the file to the coroner after only two years. Under the law, they have seven years to do so, but went early because the investigation could simply go no further. This was a baffling case. There were no leads and no information from the public, credible or otherwise, to follow. No body and nowhere to search. At least the coroner would make a finding, some small solace to Colin's mother and sister who were in the court. There was no one else, just the court staff and police. No friends of Colin, no lovers or children came along, because there were none, as far as anyone knew. The deceased person was Colin Campbell. Date of death, unable to be determined. Place of death, unable to be determined. Manner of death, unable to be determined. Cause of death, unable to be determined. And that's what Colin's mother, Ilona Campbell, took home that day. The only thing, which is a stupid thing to say, I hope in the next life, which I don't even believe in it, is a better one for him. Because he had the saddest eyes I've ever seen on anybody. Uh, Colin was just so sad that I think at least he's not sad anymore. That's the only, only thing. And this is the of Housing Channel, officially North Shore Cars have been cabled out for a missing person, a Colin Campbell. Uh, he's been reported as a missing person, male, Caucasian, six foot tall, medium build, short brown hair. Colin's mother, Ilona, reported him missing on Sunday, May 31, when he failed to arrive at her house as expected. Police checked his local pub in Chatswood, but he hadn't been there. My name is Mick Kiner. I'm a detective sergeant in New South Wales Police. I have 26 years service. I'm currently stationed at Eastern Suburbs Police Area Command. I was at Chatswood for seven, eight years before that. So when the initial report was taken by the uniformed police, in this case it was at Hornsby because his mother lived there and the matter comes to Chatswood and then I've um, overseen it and picked it up from there. Colin was a big man, 193 centimetres tall and weighing in at about 108 kilos. His size made him stand out in a crowd, but no eyewitnesses have come forward despite public appeals. The inquiries were frustrated in the first instance because he didn't have a mobile phone. Normally with a mobile phone, that is one of the first, if not the first, line of inquiry that we make. Further, he also didn't have a car. He didn't drive. So they were two lines of inquiry that were not available to us. He wasn't a user of social media, internet or anything along those lines. In simple terms, he was a simple man who, you know, just relied on the goodwill of others. No phone, no car. From all accounts, he was quite a friendly type fellow. He was living in a community-style home 
at Lane Cove that was run by the Royal North Shore Hospital and there was four other men that also lived in the house. By all accounts, he was friendly with those other residents. Colin had been living at Landers Road Lane Cove for 18 months since his release from hospital. He was under the supervision of an outreach team, but he had his freedom. Colin had been in Hornsby Hospital for four years after suffering a steep decline in his mental health. He had been diagnosed as schizophrenic in 1992 when he was in his early 20s. He'd worked for a time at the State Rail Authority, but was injured in a workplace accident and was given compensation of $183,000. Ilona Campbell. He came home with a Mazda RX-7, you know, the sports car, and I think that cost about 70 grand. Yeah, straight out the show. Then something went wrong with that, whether he had the prank or whatever, I don't know. Then he came home with a Holden Commodore, some eight-cylinder thing, which actually finished up outside King's Cross Fire Station with the guts sort of ripped out the front. Like, we had really no control over him. He was a loose cannon. Anyway, Colin refused any medication, and the doctor pretty well said, well, there's sort of nothing we can do for you. Colin was eventually put under the financial guardianship of his brother, but his grip on reality was tenuous while he refused treatment for his schizophrenia. Colin learnt to hide his delusions from those close to him, his sister Vivian says. At one stage, when I was younger, he actually thought I had a tape recorder at his window playing repeatedly that I am your boss, Colin, things like that, which would be very tormenting. But as he got older, he wouldn't say any things like that because I think he realised that that would mean medication. Colin had a strong will to live despite a long history of substance abuse. In 1998, he'd overdosed on methadone, coming close to death. They brought the intensive care ambulance, but they basically declared him dead, expired. Like, they left with him, they left with a soft stretcher and bumped his head on every stair down six flights of stairs. Colin survived, but he was never the same after this episode. His right side was weakened, which affected the way he walked. This is another distinguishing feature of Colin's appearance, according to D.S. Kiner. It appears that he sustained a frontal lobe injury to his brain. As a result, his behaviour was more subdued and unfortunately did continue to abuse alcohol and he would, from all accounts, mix the alcohol with the prescription medication. In 2009, Colin was abusing alcohol and sleeping tablets. He was often delusional, but he was never suicidal. Colin's home at Landers Street Lane Cove was the starting point for D.S. Kiner's investigation. This, to me, it looks like a bloke with no friends, no partner, no kids, uh, a relationship with his family, but very little life to talk about. I mean, what were your, what were your initial impressions of the scene? Well, the impression was of a, you know, a single man of that age. Colin was 50 at the time of his disappearance. There was nothing remarkable about the room. In these type of things, sometimes that somebody's expressed some sort of suicidal ideation or there may be a note left in the house or some physical indicator that could lead us to his whereabouts. The room was neat and tidy. There was nothing to suggest that he wasn't coming back. There was clothes in the wardrobe. It looked like he had a small library there. He had some memorabilia, like tricks and trinkets that he collected along the way. So from the time that he was living at that house at Lane Cove, he'd made it quite homely. The room was quite orderly. The bed was made. There was no suggestion or anything evidence from that room that he wasn't coming back. 
There was even a calendar showing appointments Colin had made for the following week. DS Kiner and I looked deeper into the detail. There's a few things there that jump out for me. I mean, there's a packet of cigarettes on the table. I understand there's only one or two out of that packet. Mick, what's your understanding there? Well, again, if somebody's not coming back or they're going away for a long time, you think that's one of the, especially a smoker, obviously, that would be one thing that you take. Colin's family confirmed that he was a pack-a-day smoker and was therefore unlikely to leave a near-full packet behind. The other thing, and I may be mistaken here, on the other table there's a watch. Clearly, as you say, he's coming back. Look, nothing in that room suggested that he was not coming back. You can see the bed there, he's made it, but there's a box of something that he's put on there afterwards. Do you know what that box was? I think what that was, letters and some other type of thing that he had on the bed. It's interesting because he's gotten up, he's made the bed, then he's pulled that out from somewhere and put it on the bed. You can see how it's pushed the the bedspread back there. A shopping bag and so forth. And there's a pair of boots on the floor. It's important to remember that Colin's room was not a crime scene when uniformed officers visited two days after his disappearance. There was no suspicion of foul play, so it is possible that things had been moved before DS Kiner took these pictures on August 13th. The room had been locked before, but as evidence, it's not a faithful record of May 29th. In any event, police searched the room at least three times without finding any clue to Colin's whereabouts. D.S. Kiner's best lead would come not from Colin's room, but from a witness on the floor above. It's Saturday the 29th of May 2015. At 5am, nearly two hours before sunrise, David Ferguson was already awake. He would be the last person to see Colin. An actor reads from the statement he gave to D.S. Kiner. I was sitting on the front balcony at Landers Road, Lane Cove. My room, room three, is on the second story of the house and Colin Campbell was living in room two on the ground floor near the staircase. I saw Colin walk from the rear yard of the home down the driveway towards the street. This was unusual as Colin normally leaves the home by walking out the front door and down the path. Colin was wearing a black jacket, black pants and was carrying a dark coloured umbrella. I didn't get to talk to Colin as he walked straight down the driveway and walked up Landers Road towards the Lane Cove shops. It was also unusual that Colin would leave the house around this time. I get up early just about every morning and I've never seen Colin up that early and leave the house that early in the morning. Ferguson couldn't tell whether Colin had seen him and deliberately avoided talking to him. This would have been out of character. I found Colin Campbell to be a good talkative man and I got on well with him. Colin was good friends with everyone in the house. He would stay at his mother's house about every second weekend. If he was going out, he would also tell me where he was going or I would ask him. Ferguson could shed no further light on Colin's mission that morning or the destination, only that it began from the rear of the home at Landers Road. His ground floor unit had a back door into the garden. Why did Colin leave via the garden? And what was he doing there? Was it even significant? When you look at the picture you've taken of the rear there, there's a chair and a table and what appears to be a little sort of pot that I think smokers use. And I wonder whether the house may have been non-smoking and that's where residents would have to go and smoke. That could be the case. Right, so it's quite possible he's gone out for a smoke before he's leaving to go to some appointment. Well, it is possible that's what's happened. If Colin was having a last cigarette before setting off, he left the rest of the pack inside, as we know. David Ferguson had something else to offer. Colin did actually have one dream, though it was modest. Around early April 2015, I was talking with Colin at home. During the conversation, he told me that he wanted to go and live at Lithgow as there was clean air there. He didn't say anything else about Lithgow or why he wanted to live there. 
Lithgow is a two-hour drive west of Sydney. It's on the far western edge of the Sydney Basin, surrounded by wild country, including the Blue Mountains National Park. Perhaps Colin had opted for a new life there. This was explored. How would Colin have been supporting himself while effectively hiding in plain sight? His bank accounts and his disability pension were untouched. Did he have an alternative source of funds? DS Kiner found a gambling receipt in Colin's room. So in December 2013, it appears that Colin's had a Kino win uh, for $10,005. And where does that money go? It doesn't go into his accounts? We don't know. We're going back a couple of years now. Unfortunately, when we contacted the investigators, they weren't able to provide any assistance. Unhelpful, should we say? Yeah. Lithgow's housing department was much more helpful. It appears that Colin may have travelled to Lithgow in late 2014. We know that he'd made inquiries with the Department of Housing to move to Lithgow, but he didn't follow up and obviously wasn't uh, allocated a home in that area. It was thought that he may have travelled to have a look at accommodation up there. The only problem was that, though, was a Saturday. We were the mindset that if he was going to speak to anybody from housing, that he would have gone on a Friday if he went to the Lithgow area. But that was one avenue that we did look at him, whether he travelled there. But unfortunately, the Department of Housing weren't able to shed any further light on that. This is really unusual. Normally, in these sort of cases, you get a few narratives. Somebody sees someone looks like him. What have you got from the public so far? We got zero, unfortunately. I mean, normally we have some sighting or a false sighting or I thought I may have seen Colin or I saw somebody fitting that description, which leads to another line of inquiry. Unfortunately, there was zero in relation to this. He was reported within days, so it wasn't a long time. What the unfortunate reality is is that we may never know what's happened to him. Why do you say that? Well, I was hopeful that in the first couple of years that he would have been found in one way or the other. I still believe now, as I did then, that um, he's walked into bushland. This is the view that I rightly or wrongly hold, that he's walked into bushland and has suffered a medical episode or some type of misadventure and uh, it's resulted in his death and his body hasn't been found. What evidence leads you to that conclusion, Mick? What's in my mind is the Lithgow inquiries that he made to live there. That's one thing that he's told somebody, that he wanted to live at Lithgow. This is the only lead backed by any evidence, Colin's dream of fresh air in rural Lithgow. This sent him out before dawn on the 29th of May 2015. The nearest bushland to Landers Road is Lane Cove National Park, three and a half square kilometres of forest which follows the meandering Lane Cove River. It's a three kilometre walk through residential streets to the water if that was his destination. But of course, our only witness, David Ferguson, says Colin turned right towards Lane Cove shops, not left towards the National Park. On the other hand, Colin had suffered some medical episodes, albeit self-inflicted, in the month before he vanished. Housemate David Ferguson was a witness to one. He fell over in Landers Road walking home drunk. It was late at night or early in the morning and a doctor who lives in our street found him lying on the footpath and got him to hospital. He had cut the top of his head open in the fall. And then on the 9th of May 2015, Colin accidentally overdosed on Rohypnol, a muscle relaxant. Colin admitted to medical staff that on occasions he had doctor shopped in an effort to obtain sleeping pills and Panadine Fort. Colin was seen nightly by the nurse after this and was given only a one-day supply of medication. 
The nurse reported seeing Colin the night before he disappeared and saw nothing remarkable, except that he was hypersalivating, a side effect of his medication. I mean, I would tend to agree with you that the leading cause of death would be misadventure or medical episode in the bush. But why wouldn't anybody find him? Even if you fall in the Lane Cove River, there's plenty of instances where people have fallen in the river, drowned and been found, you know? It's not a place where bodies disappear, is it, Mick? No, but that is the mystery. Like D.S. Kiner, Colin's sister Vivian and his mother believe he ended up in the Lane Cove River, but for different reasons. They point to Colin's history of drug use and some shadowy unknown friends. And they you know, got rid of him. I always think in Lancaster River, but I've got no idea. But he may have been murdered. Vivian believes that Colin was meeting an associate in order to purchase illegal drugs, possibly with another person. They've consumed the drugs and Colin suffered a fatal overdose. His friends have then transported his body and dumped it in the Lane Cove River. Um, being nearly 17 stone, and a lot of users do use in the car the second they get it or somewhere like that. And I think that's what's happened, and I do agree with my mum. I think they've just rolled him into the Lane Cove River or something like that. Vivian says early morning meetings are familiar to opioid users. Well, I know I don't just think because I lived it. You have an opioid addiction, things only last four hours. So you can get quite ill and usually four o'clock is the first time you can get on in that day. But Colin at the time didn't have an addiction, but that's what the easiest time was to get on. What I mean is he'd find someone that could get it and he'd pay for them to go get theirs and for himself. Like he was never you know, greedy or quite the opposite, actually. He had some pretty shady friends that quickly introduced him to the world of doctor shopping for viceptone. The horrible word for it is methadone. Now, they were asking Colin to do that for their own benefit, but on the other hand, Colin became addicted to viceptone because of this. Funny enough, Colin and I were doing the same thing behind each other's backs. While this drug overdose theory is appealing, there's no prior evidence of Colin associating with anyone other than his mother and his fellow residents. If Colin did have a secret drug cohort, then he concealed it well. All DS kind of had was Colin's admission about doctor shopping for prescription drugs. Look, there was some suggestion that he'd been doing that doctor shopping. It's a term where they, they go from one medical practitioner with um, symptoms to obtain the prescription lawfully, but they obtain multiple prescriptions for it. The Medicare records didn't support that view. After going through the evidence, I can see why the coroner's findings were so limited. Sad, isn't it? You know, I mean, the the law goes through its process and you see the families who uh, experience this. And that, to me, is a very sad scene. Something that his mother talked a lot about was he had a sad life and she's hoping maybe the next he's having a better time. Well, look, to the truth, I'm glad that she holds that view. I was hoping that we may be able to get the answers for her, but um, there was just no evidence or information that could locate Colin. Well, we're not finished yet because, I mean, someone out there, you know very well that someone out there has the answer to this, don't you? Well, I think somebody may have seen him. It may have been insignificant at the time. However, it's very important that somebody saw Colin, especially in that Lane Cove area, early in the morning. Did I see him boarding a bus? Did he get in a car? Did he meet somebody? We may never know. Well, he's not Spider-Man, is he? No. What I find disappointing and frustrating to a certain extent is that 
He was known to the area. He'd lived in that area for two years. He would have been known to the locals there. The local community would have seen him. Unfortunately, we just don't know anything more than his flatmate seeing him leave the home at 5am. What about people who want to give something anonymously, people who are fearing that they might face a consequence or two of revealing something? What would be your advice to them? Well, no, we have processes in place for that where people can anonymously contact police through the Crime Stoppers Network and that information is treated in the strict confidence. Of course. Well, mate, I'm far from negative about this. I hope there'll be information coming in that sheds new light on this and I guess people need to know that when evidence does come up, the detectives are are ready and willing to follow it up? Yeah, we want any information. Anybody knows something, contact us and so we can follow it up for the family's sake and we all want to know those answers. Well, please tell us where he is because that's what we'd like to know. Colin would like to be remembered. He'd like to have a resting place, you know, a proper one. Colin Campbell is one of 700 long-term missing persons cases in New South Wales that are currently being reviewed. Cases like Colin's that have so few leads are being re-examined to make sure nothing was overlooked in the original investigation. Detective Chief Inspector Glenn Brown is the manager of the newly formed New South Wales Missing Persons Registry. It's a reason why in our new office We've installed a number of large screen televisions, but some of those televisions are dedicated to scrolling through the images of our long-term missing people and the stories behind them. Even now, having sat in this office for nine or 10 months, I still find it very confronting to look up at those screens and see some of our long-term missing people and read those stories. It makes everyone in the office realise why we're here and why the work that we're doing is so important. If you or someone you know saw Colin Campbell after 5am on May 29th, 2015, I urge you to contact Crime Stoppers on 1800 333 000 or your local police station. All information will be treated as strictly confidential. State Crime Command Investigations is a production of Podcast One Australia in collaboration with the New South Wales Police Force. Written and produced by Adam Shan. Executive producer, Grant Tothill. Original music and mixing by Matt Nikolic. The associate producer, Sarah Grinberg. Research by Nolly Shand. 